Welcome to 21st Century Renaissance, hosted by Bei Bei Song, produced by Essinova. Episode 3, Curiosity in the Art of Reimagining Scientific Discovery, with Rebecca Kamen. Part 1. Rebecca Kamen is a sculptor and lecturer at the intersection of art and science, whose artwork is informed by wide-ranging research into cosmology, neuroscience, medicine, chemistry, history, and philosophy, and by connecting common threads that flow across these various fields to capture and reimagine what scientists see. She has researched on collaborative projects and investigated scientific archives at world-leading institutions such as Harvard University, MIT, the National Institutes of Health, the American Philosophical Society, the Chemical Heritage Foundation, and the Cajal Institute in Madrid. A recipient of numerous fellowships and grants, Professor Kamen has exhibited and lectured both nationally and internationally, including in China, Korea, Austria, Egypt, Spain, Chile, Australia, and Singapore. Her artwork is represented in many private and public collections. Currently, she's serving as an artist-in-residence at the Computational Neuroscience Initiative and the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Pennsylvania. In this interview, which follows a lecture she specially prepared for Asinova and 21st Century Renaissance audience, we discuss unconventional ways of learning, the power of curiosity, the aesthetics of science, and the discovery process that art and science both share and differ on. She tells the story of her journey from a dyslexic girl who barely got into a community college to a sought-after visualizer and catalyst in cutting-edge science and how she pushes scientists further than they ever dream of. She also gives us a sneak preview into some of her new research in subjects such as memory stones and shares her view on new technologies such as artificial intelligence and virtual reality. Join us on a magical ride across scientific terrains and cultural territories to find some daring, creative inspirations for yourself. It's so exciting to finally meet you, Rebecca. Well, same here. I, I guess we really haven't met face to face, literally. <laughs> we haven't. And even though we've, we go back to, I was trying to remember, I think it's probably about 20, 14, 15-ish. That would sound about right. I don't even remember how we got connected, but uh, uh, <laughs> gosh, so that's about seven, eight years ago. We finally have an opportunity. I guess in that sense, this is a nice side benefit of the pandemic. I wouldn't even have thought of connecting this way, and I would have had to rely on an opportunity for you to either be in the Bay Area or I am on the East Coast for us to have a meaningful in-depth conversation. And I'm grateful that uh, now we get to do this uh, remotely. It may not be the same as being in person, but hopefully we still can have a uh, delightful conversation, which I'm, I'm sure we'll have. Forward to it. <laughs> you have a presentation for us today. Yes which will be a new format that I'm uh, curious to, to experiment with. And I'm privileged to be the first one on behalf of my audience to be experiencing that first, and then we'll dive into our dialogue. Okay, let me share my screen. Okay. The presentation today is going to just give you a, a brief overview of um, my art practice, which explores the intersections of art and science. Um, I've been fortunate enough since about uh, 2008 to collaborate with scientists in all different scientific fields and all over the world. And I did not let the pandemic stop me because I, I was uh, scheduled to do a very big exhibition that talked about curiosity in the creative process in art and science. And, you know, both scientists and artists are very creative. They figured out new strategies and ways of connecting and, and making things possible. 
So this uh, presentation today is going to focus on some of the notions that I've been exploring, which is the reimagining of scientific discovery. Many people ask me, you know, how I got interested in science. And these are some of my earliest tools of discovery. My microscope, which for most people must look prehistoric or an antique, uh, the this ChemCraft chemistry set, which would be totally illegal in this day and age because of the chemicals that were in it. I always knew when chemistry magic was happening because it always smelled bad in the basement, which was my scientific studio uh, or research lab. And one of my personal favorites was a wonderful first telescope that my dad and I built out of two paper towel tubes and optics from Edmund Scientific Company in Englewood uh, Cliffs, New Jersey. So these really planted the seeds of a curiosity about the world around me. Another major seed that was planted was in the fifth grade. I actually grew up in Philadelphia. And I remember being taken to the Philadelphia Art Museum and being placed in front of uh, Marcel Duchamp's New Descending the Staircase. It was enchanting. I had never seen anything like it. I remember buying a postcard and taking it home to show my parents because it was just so unusual. And what's really wonderful about this painting is the fact that it really is about physics. And a lot of times when I lecture to physicists, and I shared it last week with a physics colloquium I did at American University. I talk about it's an artist capturing space and time. So it really deals with this notion of space time. Another, if I had to look back on my journey um, on an experience that I think really planted the seeds for this notion of art science and a curiosity in this area, it was a very unusual and wonderful cultural exchange between a sculptor in Chengdu, China, Zhao Shutong, and myself. And it was at a time before even the advent of the computer. And so we would have to write letters back and forth to each other. I was, I was very fortunate in that I taught at a community college and one of my colleagues was willing, was Chinese and willing to translate letters back and forth. But it wasn't instant. It would take at least two weeks to go back and forth. And so, as you can see, this collaboration lasted over a significant period of time. We never got the funding to produce uh, our vision, which was a sculpture garden, but we, we were able to produce a really wonderful documentary video, which really captured the essence um, of the project. Back in 2005, a, a friend of mine who was a curator or, and still is at the American Center for Physics uh, contacted me and said, uh, would you be willing to create 16 new sculptures for an exhibition celebrating uh, the 100th anniversary of Einstein's discovery of special relativity? And I said, sure. <laughs> and it, it was like a three-month window to do that. And she said, are you out of your mind? And I said, probably, but I want to see if I can do it. It's a personal goal. Not only did I finish it with three weeks, but I was also at the time teaching full time and, and also working on a very large uh, sculpture installation for another exhibition. This is actually one of the pieces and it's been inspired by um, the concept of Doppler effect. As a result of someone seeing the physics show, I was invited to come to Philadelphia and to be an artist in residence at the American Philosophical Society, which was started by Ben Franklin in 1643 to promote useful knowledge, whatever that meant in 1643. And it was a wonderful opportunity for me because it has incredible holdings, including the notebooks of John Archibald Wheeler. Uh, Wheeler was a colleague of Einstein's. They both taught at Princeton. Uh, Wheeler never won the Nobel Prize, but he certainly impacted several Nobel laureates who were students. And he is the physicist who coined the word 
dark matter and black holes. So, you know, that is attributed to him. Mm -hmm. At the time, um, I was researching his notebooks, and I've researched them at least three times, uh, three different times looking for different things. At this time, the first time, they were deassessing their card catalog. So I asked uh, the librarian if I could have all the John Wheeler cards and all the black hole cards. And so what I wanted to do was to use the black hole as a metaphor and create a sculpture inspired by it, literally ingesting all those library cards. And it's really exciting for me because it is now in the reading room at the American Philosophical Society. And uh, according uh, to their librarian, it's, it's one of the favorite things they like to show when people come on tour through the library. After that experience, um, I was invited to Ch Chile to do some lecturing. And on my return home, I remember entering my home and having this vision that I was supposed to do something with the periodic table of elements. And I thought, wow, was it jet lag or bad food? I mean, <laughs> who has these visions? And so I know for me, these kinds of insights or visions are always an invitation to reimagine science or some specific science phenomenon in a new way. And so after two years of doing copious research, which took me to the Chemical Heritage Foundation in, in Philadelphia, that's now the Science History Institute, it also took me up high into the Himalayas. I realized mm -hmm. actually in the Himalayas that the, the, the periodic table really represented Western cosmology. And um, so what I wanted to do was to take that rigid gridded chart, take it off the wall and create a installation that became uh, a walking meditation for people. Because if you think about the periodic table, it represents the world above, below and everything in between. And so what I did was I use the electron orbital patterns as my inspiration. And at a certain point, I felt like it needed sound. And what you're hearing now is a wonderful collaboration um, with uh, a woman who was investigating what I was, but with sound, Susan Alexander, who um, is in California. And so we partnered up and decided to create a full kinesthetic and sensory experience for people so they could really reimagine the periodic table in a, in a new way. And it was incredible because people, Tamis would say to me, I never thought of what I did as beautiful, you know? Mm -hmm. And I would say to them, my God, and they say, we don't have those beautiful images like astrophysicists have. And mm -hmm. I said to them, well, you have something better. Your field's about transformation at every level. Mm. And that's what I love about what I get to do is I get to go into these incredible scientific communities and provide a new lens for them to uh, reimagine what they do on a daily basis. So the two areas that I'm most interested in really developed out of two really incredible experiences that really actually happened at the same time. I was invited to do research at Harvard Center for Astrophysics. And at the same time, I was also invited to be an artist in residence in the neuroscience program at National Institutes of Health. This is when I still lived in the Washington, D.C. area. And this gave me a very incredibly unique perspective because I was looking at patterns in nature um, at both the micro and macro level. And what it made me realize is that an astrophysicist would never be looking at neuroscience <laughs> to answer uh, problems or questions to problems that they have or vice versa. But I, at the time, I was invited to do quite a bit of lecturing um, in both of these fields simultaneously. So insights 
that I was getting um, researching in one field would enable me to share that and provide a new lens in the other field. So as a result of my, um, what turned out to be almost three-year residency at NIH, why I was also teaching full-time, was the opportunity to see these just extraordinary drawings of Santiago Ramon y Cajal, who is considered the father of neuroscience. And actually my mentor at NIH and I were invited to come to the Cajal Institute in Madrid and we each did a lecture. We also negotiated for NIH to have a ongoing exhibition of Cajal drawings, which was not any small feat. I would like to say that that's what happens when an artist and a scientist collaborate and work together, all things are possible. And it, it certainly was true in this case. But Cajal talks about the butterflies of the soul. And the first sculpture I created during that residency celebrated that. And what you're seeing here is the sculpture. And just to give you an idea, it's about um, five feet by three feet. It's made out of mylar. All my work is all hand cut. I don't use any kind of computerized cutting machines. For me, it's always about a meditation when I create my sculptures. And what you're seeing here are the corresponding Cajal drawings that inspired each one of the elements of the sculpture. At the bottom, that red form that looks like a root ball, that's been inspired by a reticulum, which is what neuroscientists thought in the beginning that um, the cells were this ball as opposed to individual cells, which is that green form in the center or what's called a pyramidal cell growing out of the reticulum. And then those forms that look like butterflies have actually been inspired by that beautiful drawing on the upper left of uh, what are called Purkinje cells. And to me, when I actually looked at them, they really did look like butterflies. And I understood Cajal's quote of butterflies of the soul. As a result of um, being in residence at NIH, I received a very interesting phone call from the director of the National Museum of Health and Medicine about maybe two years into my residency. And she said to me, if you were willing to do a lecture on your neuroscience inspired work, I'll let you hold Einstein's brain. Well, who turns down an offer wow. like that? <laughs> After we hung up, I thought, how is that going to be delivered? <laughs> you know, is it his actual brain? Well, actually, it was histological slides, of which you're seeing one here on the screen. That was scarier for me because if you've ever held a brain, it's very weighty. You know, it's something you're probably not going to drop. But a very fragile histological slide is something <laughs> fragile. And uh, luckily, I didn't drop any of them. But <laughs> as I was holding it, it made me think about how his inner space, his brain impacted his view of outer space. So I find I'm, I'm highly sensitive when I get to hold any type of special collection about things that come up in, in my head that I want to investigate. And this was certainly one of them. And it inspired this particular installation called Neurocantos or Songs of the Brain. And each one of these conical shapes, just to give you an idea, they're cut flat, they're all cut by hand. They're held in tension and compression by suspending them. And they represent um, the neuronal uh, pathways in our brain. And then the circular pieces at the bottom represent patterns at both the micro and macro level. And the whole idea of this was to have people walk through this and get a sense of experiencing what it's like when we're walking somewhere and we're really engaged with what is going on and how our brain is processing information. This also had a sound piece that was based on a, a poem developed by a poet that I collaborate with and also words of Santiago Ramon y Cajal. All this work in neuroscience and astrophysics 
uh, led me to the work that I'm doing now at the University of Pennsylvania in my collaboration with just a really rich range of scientists, uh, one of which that I collaborated with during the, uh, during the pandemic was the Complex Systems Lab. And one of the things that they're investigating at the moment is what goes on in our brain to make us curious. My dialogues with them that started before the pandemic and all during the pandemic led me to develop work for a wonderful exhibition at um, the, the museum at American University called Reveal, the Art of Reimagining Scientific Discovery. And it was really amazing to me. I've never been in a situation where I've been in lockdown. I, I think all of us as human beings haven't. But it was so amazing how Zoom really connected all of us in, you know, all over the world. I mean, I was collaborating with scientists in all, in, as far as England and, and different parts of the country for this exhibition. And so the, the basis of this was um, a postdoc who I collaborated with. What we decided to do was to chart all the pathways of my knowledge networking that went into the creation of every piece of artwork in this exhibition. So what you're seeing on the left is a data visualization um, of that phenomena of being able to chart every knowledge network connection um, that I experienced on my artistic journey. What you're seeing on the right side is it in, in dynamic time. So one is static and one is dynamic. I always thought it would be fun to get a t-shirt made that, that says, this is my brain on curiosity. And it's something that everyone experiences because we're all curious and it's something we share with the animal world as well. And so for this exhibition, what I did, and I had to do this for the most part remotely because of the pandemic, was inviting scientists to share their research with me and then for me to respond and create artwork based on what I was understanding or reimagining about their scientific discovery. What was so exciting is once I finished the sculpture and I sent an image to them, they were all so in awe of how someone not even in their field could understand what they were doing. In this case, this is a woman that studies the cerebellum. What was interesting to me about the cerebellum it's like a mini brain. It has two hemispheres and sits on the back of your neck. And it has a real diversity of neurons, which are those blue forms. And that was really interesting to me, having had an opportunity, you know, to be in residence in neuroscience at NIH. And then I had an extraordinary experience, which when I lecture about it is sounds frightening to people, but it was, as Einstein says, every crisis is a potential opportunity. Uh, during my first visit to American University's campus, the second day I was there, I woke up with terrible vertigo and found out I had a brain tumor, which you're seeing here. And it was a unique one in that it was on my optic nerve, which was interesting to me because the optic nerve is that super highway between vision, your eye, and your visual cortex, which translates what your eye is seeing. And so what I did was I thought, well, I had this terrible double vision. Why don't I get out of my bed, go into my studio and try to capture that and see what it's about. And I did about 30 to 40 paintings. I did one a day. Uh, this is the first one, and this is exactly, if you've never had vertigo, this is exactly what it feels like. And people just really responded to that, that fact that, you know, because I thought this is such a unique vision that hopefully I'll never have again, but I was able to capture it um, through artwork. At the same time this was all happening, um, I had one of the only scientist I got to meet with in person at American University is a woman who researches the sun's corona. She's what's called a heliophysicist. So she's 
looking at the dynamics of the sun. And then I thought, Corona, coronavirus. And then all of a sudden, I got so excited because I thought, micro macro, it's that dialogue again. And so I worked with her the whole time during the pandemic. And then I reached out to uh, Anthony Fauci's lab in uh, Hamilton, Montana, two women who were microscopists. And so what you're seeing here are some of the is an image of, of one of the things that they research and produce. And actually these are two of their actual um, microscopy images of the coronavirus. And, and to me, they were just so magnificent. And so I thought, well, this is really exciting. I'm going to do sculpture <laughs> created by micro and macro views because it'll just get people to think about the coronavirus in a very different way. And this is the installation from the exhibition of some of these pieces. And uh, what was interesting about the last one I created was someone had looked at it and said, wow, you know, that looks like the dancing Shiva, which I actually have a sculpture up in my studio. And then this wonderful Tao of physics quote where uh, they're talking about, you know, subatomic particles. It's an energy dance. It's uh, it's a pulsating process of uh, creation and destruction, which it really felt like to me. And that it's really this, this dance and natural phenomena. It also relates to quantum field theory, which was really interesting. So I love the fact that you could create something that really inspired people to think about the coronavirus in a more creative, productive way. And then as I was working, doing a lot of research on the coronavirus, I realized that, it, that there was this structure that was based on geometry. And then it brought me back to Galileo, who said that the book of nature is written in the language of mathematics and to even think about mathematics as a language. And so that really inspired me to do a whole series of pieces called Illuminations. And these are based on the isosahedron, which is the same geometry that creates the coronavirus. And um, it was really powerful uh, for me as the artist of seeing how something so deadly and what people perceived as really terrifying could be turned into a, a learning lesson or something quite beautiful. And then as I do with, with a lot of uh, my practice, I like to really take on scientific phenomena. And uh, for this particular exhibition, I wanted to do something significant with, with the uh, coronavirus. And for this, I created an installation called Silent Spread. It's, it was 28 sculptures that was based on uh, coronavirus SIR data map. And it really gave me a reason to get up every morning because I was creating these forms. They're very complex. They took a lot of time. But if someone said, what did you do on your coronavirus adventure? It would be that. That would be one of my adventures. What's exciting to me is how, as an artist, you can create something. And sometimes you never know it's its final journey or, or its, its additional impact that you can have. And about a year ago, I was invited um, by a group in California to be part of an exhibition that explored language and dyslexia. And I'm actually dyslexic, which to me, I think has really enabled me to have the kind of vision that I have because I'm a visual learner. And so when I read a book, which is always a struggle sometimes, instead of seeing words, I'm seeing images, which as an artist has really served me well. And so um, one of the doctoral students that I was working with in, in, on the other project said to me, you know, we can use artificial intelligence to animate illustrations of how your brain interprets information. Oh my God, I was so excited. I thought, 
this is unbelievable because I've always been scared of AI, mainly because I didn't know anything about it. And you read this stuff and it sounds a little scary. So what we did is, and how we worked before, is to, I put together PowerPoints that describe, in this case, this particular sculpture. And so some of the descriptions for this sculpture was, it was a vehicle of discovery, the dance of creation, different things. Um, And then the last part that it was in the style of German zoologist Ernst Haeckel, who has really influenced quite a bit of my work. So what you're seeing is the sculpture. And now with AI, you're seeing this sculpture transform based on my descriptions of what impacted the creation of it. And I love the fact that because my brain is very visual, um, we were able to capture this using a 21st century technique to let people get an idea of the transformational quality of what goes on, especially in my brain as as a dyslexic human being. And then finally, in closing, just to give the audience an idea of some of the different scientific communities that um, I've been able to share my work. And it's been such an honor and a privilege to collaborate with scientists and then to use my work and have it being presented in, in scientific communities to inspire and to create a new lens for scientists to reimagine what they do. And one of my favorite Leonardo da Vinci quotes, learn to how to see, realize that everything connects to everything else. Thank you. Wow, Rebecca, that's such a treat to go through this journey that you narrate yourself, not only this visual extravaganza of this beautiful artwork, select artworks you've created, but also to hear behind each artwork, the genesis, the process, what goes into it. So many different scientific terrains you've been traversing, seemingly disjointed from astrophysics to neuroscience to medicine and health and physics, astronomy. Not only that, but also some snapshots of your your personal life, your your own dyslexia, your early childhood, etc. So it's it's uh, such a great opportunity to experience it with you, both your art and you as as the artist. I would like to talk about some of the art pieces, but also maybe chat about your own journey or your path, career path as a science artist. And oh, absolutely. You, you spoke about your, your childhood, and it struck me that you talked about your scientific studio, your experimental laboratory, before you had your art studio. Exactly. <laughs> How come you didn't become a scientist? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> That was always my dream. I was a student at a time before we even had the word dyslexia Mm. at school. And um, I just assumed everyone struggled with reading the way I did. And I, you know, as a good student, I was very inquisitive. uh, But believe it or not, I could not get into college. Mm. Um, I had, you know, B average, but I just, my SAT scores were so bad that not even the Philadelphia Community College would accept me. Mm. My parents always knew how much I wanted to teach. So they went to the principal and said, um, is there anything we can do? Rebecca really wants to go to college. So Penn State was willing to put me on, uh, bring me in on probation but they basically told my parents they were wasting their money sending me to college, which is a great story to share now with students, especially young students, because don't ever be limited by what other people say. And I was smart enough to know that if I could find a major where I didn't have to take math, <laughs> because math 
was another problem. Now, now I lecture about it all the time. And I found art education because it, it was the only major that I didn't have to take math, at least at that time. Mm-hmm. And I took my first sculpture course and I took off because my dad and I used to always build science projects together. And I loved it. I loved the building part of it, trying to understand how everything works. Mm-hmm. And as I tell scientists, because even at Harvard, they said, how do you know this stuff? You have, I mean, I, my last science course was 11th grade chemistry. Mm. And I said, well, because I'm curious, you know, and I hang out with scientists and they're very generous about talking to me and sharing about what they're curious about. And being a visual learner, the fact that I can be in a lab now looking and watching uh, science, what I call science magic happen is, is thrilling to me. So what I tell scientists, I, I have the best of both worlds. I get to do science. <laughs> without all the rules, you know? Mm -hmm. And when I say rules, I mean, uh, a neuroscientist is not going to be looking at astrophysics to find a solution to a problem. I am. And then I lecture to them and they go, oh, wow, you know, I didn't think about that. Maybe I should look at that. And that's what I love. What I get to do is I get to do science, but on my own terms. Well, good for your parents to be wise and and supportive. Oh, my God. You know, when you're that young, and I didn't think I struggled. I mean, I'm a pretty enthusiastic person, as you could probably tell. And I was even that way as a kid. Mm -hmm. I love learning anything. You know, Mm -hmm. I was really fortunate. I had parents that took us to museums, Mm -hmm. um, really allowed us anything we wanted to, like I had chemistry sets, you know, because I didn't know what, I mean, when I was early teens, my mother got me Rachel Carson's book, A Sense of Wonder. And in it, I still have it. It's still on my bookshelf now with books on quantum physics. It says, may you never lose your sense of wonder. And it's Mm. dated. And I show that book quite a bit when I lecture, even to scientists, because I think people need to understand that those seeds of curiosity and discovery don't start now. Mm -hmm. You know, they start when you're little, you know, and they fuel who you become as an adult. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm uh, I'm at an age now where I'm reflecting, I'm looking back on my journey Um, to be able to share it with others. You know, I do a lot of public outreach to people. I do a lot in in dyslexic communities because I think it's really important. And and in this day and age, we have so many great things that can really assist people who are neurodiverse. I mean, just to celebrate the fact that we have neurodiversity, that not everyone learns in the same way. I mean, that would be boring. Mm-hmm. No innovation would ever happen. Mm-hmm. I feel, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So every brain is different. It is, and to Basic be celebrated. Science. Yeah, yeah. So Santiago Ramon y Cajal wanted to be an artist and had to become a scientist under his parents' pressure, his father's. But he ended up to be a, a Nobel-winning scientist, so not a bad outcome. In your case, yours is the opposite. You wanted to be a scientist, but constrained by a quote-unquote neural condition and ended up to be an esteemed artist. Not a bad outcome either. (laughs) (laughs) And and if I may share something, because Kahal is one of my heroes, Mm-hmm. Um, and and having been invited to come to the Kahal Institute and to go through his cache of 7,000 drawings, not that I had time to look at 7,000, but uh, what was very interesting, some of the insights that I gleaned from my visit was, as you mentioned, he came into the world wanting to be an artist, and his dad said, that's not going to happen. But Um, holding a beautiful painting he did when he was probably about eight or nine years old, his his ability to see and record at such a young age, and this is 
with me and my art education hat on now, not mm -hmm. necessarily a uh, sculptor hat, is he had this ability to see and record because he loved art, you know? And the uh, one of the other things uh, I, I realized is uh, I asked if I could look at a goji stain slide under a microscope, one of his slides. And what I realized is his ability to see and record, which started when he was really young, he would do that when he was looking through the microscope. And, and what I realized at that point is in this day and age, scientists use cameras to capture discovery. But when you're drawing it, you're processing what you're discovering as opposed to taking a quick photo and moving on to the next thing. And I really believe in, I lecture a lot to scientists, I talk to them about that, this, the importance of engaging drawing, you know, and this is someone who has taught drawing for many years as a professor, that was really interesting to me because that process of, of seeing and recording and processing really enabled him to make the kinds of discoveries that he did. So I wanted to put in a kaha plug. Yes, absolutely. And, and that ability and, and that practice of, of drawing probably played a big part in his unique discovery and becoming the father of neuroscience. I totally agree. Yeah. And I like I liken the value of, say, drawing or other types of art practice to say um, submarine, an all-terrain vehicle, you get to go a lot more depth and you also can discover a lot more broadly beyond the limitation of what, like for example, a quick snapshot of a camera or just using language itself can enable you. I so. totally agree. And I think sometimes my, and again, this is just my observation, is that unfortunately science can be a little limiting. Because yeah. what I find with science, every single field, people are so myopic, they don't even know what's going on in, in the scientist's office next door to them. I mean, you know, there's just, it's so complex. Um, and they scientists tell me there's so much that you the only way you can get a handle on it is just to just research one small bit of it. Yeah. And no one ever puts the pieces together. That's why I think things sometimes like cancer don't get solved because everyone has little bits of information to part of this giant, you know, puzzle, but no one ever really has time to put the pieces together. So hopefully that'll happen. Yeah. And the pieces, yeah, whether you like it or not, the pieces are all related to each other. Exactly. And, and yeah. And that's what the Tower of Physics were saying. When you go down to the subatomic particle levels, you realize it's not just the, <laughs> the, the quantum. It's not just the, the particle, but also the wave. It's everything is connected with everything else. I think part of it is... There's so much. I mean, I talk to scientists about this all the time. There's just so much in all these fields that is uncovered that you can only look at one small part of the picture, which is what I love. What I get to do is I get to be like at the smorgasbord table. I can pick from here and here and, you know, put it all together on my plate and say, wow, I think I've discovered something new about all these things that would have never happened had I just picked up peas, you know, at, or string beans or whatever. And so that's what I really love what I get to do is to really go into these different scientific practices and labs and just allow myself to be inspired by whatever, you know, captures my curiosity at mm -hmm. any particular time. Mm -hmm. and it's incredible what manifests. I, I'm in total awe of what, what I get to do. Yeah, and, and um, among your artwork, what resonated the most with me that manifests this connection that you uncover, or you discover when you are not limited by a particular slice of, of, of discipline. 
is the the contrast between the, the macro and the micro mm-hmm. and the connection between the two. I, I similarly am drawn to that. Perhaps that's why I think now I recall the artworks, the piece that I featured in my online gallery, the science art gallery back a few years ago when we first connected was um, Neuroquantos. I didn't realize that was uh, after your invitation, your special invitation to hold uh, Einstein's brain or his logical slide. I I didn't realize what a unique, extraordinary opportunity you had had that led to the creation of, of this work. I was drawn to it, even though I think at the time I was looking for, I was intrigued or interested in the intersection between art and science. And the initial, the first subdomain I was going after was the connection between art and neuroscience. And I think that's how I found you. But then your work also brought in the uh, Einstein's discovery and the and cosmology. And I, at the time, I wasn't necessarily seeing the connection. Years later, I began to see, but I instinctively was drawn to that series. And then I see that the, there is the echo of that connection when you later on created the um, solar corona and uh, coronavirus piece. Once again, it's the macro and the micro. By the way, recently, I think I think it was just a few days ago, there was the solar total solar eclipse. I think the best viewed in Australia, and they had this wonderful image of the solar corona, and they had this science team on on hand to study because that's a, a gives them a lot of insight in in space weather and and etc. Anyhow, when I was looking hearing about that, I thought of I thought of your work. Well, if, if I might talk a little bit about space weather, since you brought it up, I had this wonderful dialogue with this woman at AU who's the heliophysicist about the sun's corona. And what was so amazing, she said to me, her dream on her bucket list was to see the aurora borealis. So I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, it's solar flares that cause the aurora borealis. Then, um, I don't know, about a year ago, the American Philosophical Society reached out to me because they were creating an exhibition on uh, women scientists who really didn't get the kind of recognition that they deserved. Mm -hmm. And they said, would you be willing to, we commission you to do a series of sculptures that celebrate their scientific discovery. And I said, oh my God, I would be honored to do that. And actually that exhibition just opened probably about a month ago and it's gonna be up through December 30th. So it's gonna be up for a while. And the first manuscript that they sent me or, or facsimile of it dates back to 1770 and it was sent to a woman named Laura Bocci who was a physicist at the University of Bologna and what it was sent to her from a male physicist who had written down observations of the aurora borealis that he had seen Mm -hmm. oh my god I, I was holding this facsimile in my hand and I made reservations to go to Iceland at Christmas because I was determined to see the aurora borealis. Not only did I go to Iceland, but I got to see it three times or her, I refer to it as her. But what's interesting, and I'm going to be doing a lecture on this at the American Philosophical Society in May, is the fact that in order for this beautiful phenomena to happen, the sun has to be really angry. And (laughs) it's anger, it produces solar flares, you know, from sunspots. And I say it's angry because I look at a lot of images, solar images, and it looks angry at me. (laughs) And in its anger, it throws out these flares and these flares throw out these particles that come down and they interact, it's chemistry. So you have physics, you have chemistry and you have aesthetics in one experience. Mm. And I love lecturing about this because to me, 
there is this incredible beauty to science. And to me, the Aurora Borealis really is that object, that scientific phenomena that really embraces all those things. And uh, actually, I'm a real research junkie. I was determined, I thought 1770, you know, this is the date of that document that I had. It turns out there was the, the, a major Aurora Borealis that was seen in, in Asia, Korea, China, Japan, that was recorded with paintings. So now I was so excited because I thought, oh, this is really interesting because of my own curiosity that date 1770, I thought what happened then that really caused that to happen and be observed in Italy. And then I see it where it really was most heightened was in Asia. Mm. And so I love the fact because of my own curiosity now mm. that this story is really unraveling and, and I mm. get to share it with people when I do lectures. So anyway. Oh, wow. Aurora Borealis, we, we, um, I, with my family a few years ago, we went to Finland and we tried, we went to the, um, the northern territory, I think it was um, Lapland, uh, I forgot the, the specific Lapland. term. Yeah, 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 exactly. And um, unfortunately, it, it, it was cloudy for, for all the, the three or four nights that we stayed at. So we didn't get to see it. And believe it or not, it happened uh, just a couple days ago. Lots of parts of the world, including Southern California. And I didn't know about it. I missed it. <laughs> oh, you missed it. Uh, I missed it. <laughs> no, until the day after we saw incredible images online, including from many states in the U.S., so unfortunately, I missed it. Yeah, I missed it again. But I, I would love to see um, what you uh, come up with. This story about 1770, I had I had no idea. <laughs> I didn't be... either. And yeah. actually, because of my curiosity, I uncovered the first drawing or painting of of solar activity. 11, I think it was 1160, something like this, a, a British scientist of sunspots. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful engraving and the yeah. first drawing of the Aurora Borealis from around the same period. Wow. I'd love yeah, to see that. I mean, it's just, oh my God, it's so magical. Sometimes I feel like Alice in Wonderland as <laughs> I pull down the rabbit hole of all things are possible. Um, and that's what I try to encourage people when I go out and lecture. Everyone has this potential, you know, mm-hmm. to discover things and be curious about things. And um, especially young people, I think it's really important to really encourage them to be mm-hmm. curious and to really see where that leads. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 21st Century Renaissance, hosted by Bebe Song, produced by Essinova. Episode 3, Curiosity in the Art of Reimagining Scientific Discovery, with Rebecca Kamen. To be continued in Part 2.